Welcome to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. All of us who call ourselves animal activists or animal advocates share a common concern, a concern for animals and the suffering caused by humans on animals. Chances are, if you're listening to the show, you're working in your own way to reduce animal suffering on this planet. Maybe you rescued your last dog or cat from a shelter or a rescue organization. Or perhaps you signed a petition to stop the cruel practice of seal hunting. Or you made a conscious decision to try and remove meat products from your diet. Whether you realize it or not, if you took any one of these or countless other actions to help an animal or animals, you are part of the animal welfare movement. Have you ever wondered when the animal welfare and animal rights movements began or what precipitated the existence of animal advocacy? Despite tremendous growth in animal advocacy throughout the years, this belief that animals exist for human use dates back tens of thousands of years. Like any belief system, it's deeply rooted in our history and culture and cannot be changed overnight. Eight to 10,000 years ago, people first began the practice of herding, significantly changing the relationship to humans. Humans began owning and confining animals such as sheep and goats for food. 2,000 years after that, people started owning cows. Domestication of animals for food was an essential element in the progress of human civilization. Millennia later, Mahatma Gandhi, the leader of India's non-violence independence movement, proclaimed, The greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way its animals are treated. But before Gandhi, Enlightenment-era philosophers offered their own formulations about animals in society. And I'll just touch upon a few of them here. We'll dive into this in a bit more detail in an upcoming show. Well-known philosophers Immanuel Kant and René Descartes both theorized that animals did not have equal consideration with humans because animals lacked consciousness, reason, and autonomy. Kant and Descartes subscribe to what is known as indirect theories, theories that have at their basis the requirement that one should not harm animals, but only because doing so indirectly does harm to a human being's morality. 17th century philosopher Descartes, who is often referred to as the father of modern philosophy, believed animals could not reason and were incapable of feeling pain. They were akin to mechanical robots who were not deserving of compassion like humans. Immanuel Kant's work has been discussed throughout animal advocacy movements to this day. While he did not believe that humans had any ethical obligation to animals, he felt cruelty should be avoided simply because cruelty toward animals would lead to the development of cruel habits that humans would inflict on one another. Possibly the most animal-friendly viewpoint was that of the 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill. He believed the right action was that which minimized pain and suffering and maximized pleasure for everyone involved, referred to as utilitarianism. His philosophy applied to humans as well as non-human animals. As an example, a utilitarian might claim that the treatment of millions of experimental laboratory animals is okay if billions of people benefit from it by gaining better health. Given the recent visibility of animal rights issues in media and law, one might think the animal rights movement was new. However, 2,500 years ago and further back in history, there are recorded cases of respected people urging others to show compassion for animals. Since its earliest recordings, the animal rights movement has always been tied in with vegan living as a means of eliminating or minimizing cruelty to animals. The spiritual teachers of India who rejected the herding culture were the earliest animal activists that we know of today. They committed to minimizing cruelty by interfering with animals as little as possible and allowing them to live out their lives as natural beings. They taught and practiced a vegan lifestyle. 
The most prominent of these would be Mahavir, a significant teacher in the Jain tradition, and the Buddha, both of whom taught their students compassion through meatless living. Both Jainism, which is traditionally known as Jain Dharma, an ancient Indian religion, and Buddhism, which encompasses a variety of traditions, beliefs, and spiritual practices primarily based on original teachings of the Buddha, taught and practiced the teaching and understanding of Ahimsa. Ahimsa is a consciousness of nonviolence. The essential belief is that violence toward any living beings is unethical and brings suffering to the victim, the perpetrator, and society. It's inspired by the premise that all living beings have the spark of the divine spiritual energy, and therefore to hurt another being is to hurt oneself. Ahimsa has been related to the belief that violence has karmic consequences. Both Jain and Buddhism practice nonviolence. Adherents of these practices were not permitted to own animals or harm animals. The 1860s is when organized animal protection really began in America. Citizens launched independent nonprofit societies for the protection of cruelty to animals, SPCAs in several cities. However, unfortunately, after World War I, many of these initiatives lost momentum. Animal protection saw a revival following World War II. Treatment and use of animals began to come under greater scrutiny. Ideas about what had always been regarded as humane treatment of animals started being challenged. Once again, attitudes about the relationship between humans and non-human animals began to change. In the mid to late 1940s, scientific institutions had turned to municipal shelters to get cheap dogs and cats for research. In fact, scientific institutions devoted effort to get animal procurement laws passed, allowing them to gain access to animals from municipally owned shelters. These laws usually passed without difficulty. In the early 1950s, the animal rights movement took on one primary cause, the issue of pound seizure, which was rooted in existing animal shelter principles and policies. In pound seizure, dog and cats in shelters were sold or released for use in research. Animal advocates took issue with the increase in amounts of money spent on biomedical research, which in turn increased the demand of laboratory animals, many of which came from shelters. Most local humane society officials felt that forcing organizations to provide animals for research violated their mission and ethics. However, leaders within the American Humane Association tried to negotiate with the biomedical research community rather than outright oppose them. This was likely because some key management positions in the American Humane Association were also salaried staff executive positions, so there was some conflict of interest. Salaried executives had an interest in maintaining their jobs, which meant not making themselves controversial figures in the communities they served. This fueled anger among supporters of the American Humane Association and caused discord within the organization. Ultimately, the American Humane Association backed away from this issue altogether. In 1951, the Animal Welfare Institute was formed, and in 1954, the Humane Society of the United States was created. Interestingly, both of these organizations were formed by people who were formerly associated with the American Humane Association. The many social justice movements of the 1960s and 1970s paved the way for the evolution of the animal rights movement, which then developed into two different approaches to animal rights, the utilitarian way of thinking and the rights theory approach. The 1975 publication of utilitarian philosopher Peter Singer's controversial book, Animal Liberation, again changed the conversation about human treatment of animals. It impacted what people ate, what they wore, and how humans perceived animals. Singer argued all creatures have a right to, quote, equal consideration because they can suffer. 
In the book, he writes about the cruel practices used in factory farming and the horrors perpetrated on animals used for laboratory testing. Speciesism is the term Singer used in his book to describe the exploitation of animals. It refers to an attitude of bias against a bean because of the species to which it belongs. He argues that it is discrimination no different from racism or sexism. Essentially, it allows humans to view animals as inferior and in doing so justifies regarding animals not as individuals, but as objects and means to fulfill our human desires. Many consider Singer's book the benchmark or Bible of the animal rights movement and the foundation upon which much of the movement's ideas are based. However, another branch of animal activists believe animal liberation's utilitarian viewpoint was too conservative. In 1983, philosopher Tom Reagan applied deontology, a branch of philosophy that explores moral duty to animals. In his view, any being that is a subject of a life is a being that has inherent value. Reagan's book, The Case for Animal Rights, took the position that animals possess intrinsic moral rights as individuals with complex feelings and experiences that extend beyond their ability to suffer. To this day, the book is still considered a classic of moral philosophy. With the 1990s came the Internet, which made it vastly easier for animal advocates to connect with one another, form groups, advocate, and network animals in shelters and rescue groups. Transport groups could easily connect shelter animals in one state with prospective loving homes in another. A cute video of a prancing baby goat at a small sanctuary could be viewed by millions worldwide. Anyone, anywhere could join in and help the cause even from their own homes. However, as with every other change in society, it has come with a downside. The hyper-connected internet world has made it easier for people who are looking to acquire free or cheap animals to sell, abuse, and fight, for game hunters to organize, and for videos depicting animal abuse to be shared. But it's essential to reflect on how much has been gained throughout the centuries. Animals now have their place, not only in our homes, hearts, and families, but continue to gain protection and rights in the legal system. Nonprofit animal welfare and animal rights groups have proliferated, from bare-bones locally acting ones to national and international complex corporate organizations. The Animal Welfare Act and the Endangered Species Act are cornerstones and provide broad protections, although not nearly broad enough, for innumerable animals. Private ownership of exotic animals is restricted, and more and more cities have banned traveling circuses which use animals. Courses in animal law have become commonplace in law schools. I can go on. Cruelty-free cosmetics are highly sought by consumers and will soon be the standard worldwide. Research methods which avoid the use and abuse of animals are coming online and becoming increasingly accepted as better and less expensive. The explosion of tasty and healthful plant-based food items, both in the market and in restaurants, is huge and permits anyone to easily begin eating fewer animal products. The dog and cat overpopulation problem, with its attendant euthanasia of unwanted animals, is almost licked. Most dog racing tracks have closed. The cruelty of horse racing has finally been exposed. And many more. Listeners know there's still so much work to do, but now is a perfect time to get involved and take action, or at least to do a little more than you're already doing. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. For 
For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Welcome back to Animals Today. We're going to talk about famous dogs in Hollywood history. Peter, who would you say is not only one of the most famous canine movie stars in history, but the most famous and recognized German Shepherd dog of all time? Oh, the German Shepherd part helps. That's Rin Tin Tin, right? That's right. During his life, Rin Tin Tin appeared in 27 Hollywood films, including one called The Man from Hell's River, that was in 1922, Frozen River in 1929, and The Lightning Warrior in 1931. Now, you're going to find Rin Tin Tin's personal story very interesting. He was rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier, Lee Duncan, who nicknamed him Rinty. Apparently, he was the only one who ended up surviving from a bombed-out dog kennel in France during the war. Now, according to a rumor, Rin Tin Tin received more votes in the first year of the Oscars than any other actor. That's funny. But the Academy gave the award to a human to avoid being embarrassed. Warner Brothers referred to Rin Tin Tin as the mortgage lifter and fully understood their success was because of this German Shepherd dog. And this dog was one of the reasons why German Shepherds became so popular as family pets in the United States at that time. Now, after Rin Tin Tin died in 1932, many dogs after him went on to take Rin Tin Tin's name and try to continue his legacy in films, television, and books. So the Rin Tin Tin used for the 1950s television series, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, was not the original Rin Tin Tin. Another iconic Hollywood canine you know Toto in The Wizard of Oz, yep. but I bet you don't know Toto's real name. No, I don't. Terry. Terry. Terry was a Karen Terrier. She was born in the midst of the Great Depression. Although Wizard of Oz, which was in 1939, was Terry's most famous role, she actually starred in 16 different movies in her lifetime. She also appeared alongside Shirley Temple in Bright Eyes as the character named Rags, that was in 1934, which was considered her first major film appearance. Reportedly, Terry did all her own stunts and almost lost her life during the filming of The Wizard of Oz. And this story, one of the winky guards, remember them? They're the Wicked Witch of the West's foot soldiers from The Wizard of Oz. Okay, I remember. One of the winky guards accidentally stepped on Toto's foot, breaking it. Toto spent two weeks recuperating at Judy Garland's residence. Garland developed a very close attachment to Toto and wanted to adopt Toto. But the owner and trainer of Toto, Carl Spitz, refused to give her to Judy Garland. Terry, Toto, died at age 11 in Hollywood in 1945 and was buried at Spitz's Ranch in Studio City, Los Angeles. The grave was destroyed during the construction of the Ventura Freeway in 1958. But in 2011, a memorial was created for her at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Nice. Next, who's the most famous collie in Hollywood? That would be Lassie. Very good. A true American icon, right? You know Lassie's real name? 
Pal. Pal starred in seven different Lassie films and portrayed Lassie in the two pilot episodes of the television series before he had to retire in 1954. Pal was the first of many to portray Lassie and was father to the dogs that would continue to portray Lassie later in the television series. The Saturday Evening Post was quoted as saying that Pal had the most spectacular canine career in film history. Peter, you're old enough to remember the movie Benji. Uh, yeah, another little dog. Yep, he was a mixed breed terrier. Benji's real name was... Uh, Benjamin. Higgins. Higgins. Good guess. In 1960, animal trainer Frank Inn found the dog at the Burbank Animal Shelter as a puppy. In the movie, Benji is a stray dog looking for a home, and when two kids are kidnapped, Benji helps bring the children back to safety. Higgins' dog trainer considered this canine film star to be the smartest dog he'd ever worked with because he was able to train Higgins to convey a multitude of emotions through facial expressions only. Higgins played in films during the 1960s and 70s, but most famous for his role in the movie Benji. And he played in six of the seven seasons of the TV sitcom Petticoat Junction. Remember that oh, one? That, that's a connection I <laughs> never made. Petticoat Junction. He also had a guest appearance on the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. Oh, that's good. He's got the whole trifecta of that little genre there. That's <laughs> right? good. Boy, we're really aging ourselves. Do you remember watching those shows? Vaguely. It was a long time ago. I was alive, though. Green Acres. <laughs> yeah, I know Green Acres. <laughs> you are my wife. Goodbye, City Life. <laughs> that's funny. See, you're old enough, too. Okay. <laughs> Enough singing. But listen to this. When he played in the movie Benji, Higgins was 14 years old. Oh, boy. Higgins died at age 17 in 1975. A couple famous chihuahuas. Yeah, Taco Bell. Very good. What was his name? Gidget. Oh, yeah. Was an advertising figure and mascot for the Taco Bell restaurant chain from September 1997 to July 2000. Gidget also appeared on a commercial for Geico. Uh, before the gecko, maybe. That's right. The other famous chihuahua, you want to guess? Oh, no. You Help. know this one. I do? Uh, there's a chihuahua. Go the ahead. A chihuahua named Bruiser. Oh, yeah. Who from... played Elwood's faithful companion in the Legally Blonde movies. Yeah, I remember Bruiser. Bruiser's real name was Mooney. <laughs> Elwood dressed Bruiser up in pink. Do you think Bruiser minded that? Bruiser could pull it off. By the way, going back to Gidget, Gidget played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. Wow, the Taco Bell Gidget? What? Yeah, oh. played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. I forgot there were multiple uh, chihuahuas <laughs> in Legally Blonde. These two chihuahuas, Mooney and Gidget, lived together. Mooney died March 2016 in Los Angeles at the age of 18. Gidget was euthanized at the age of 15 after suffering from a stroke at her owner's home. You know, it's better to have animals and cartoons as uh, spokes figures these days. I agree. Because, you know, the people, they tend to get in trouble. They get arrested. There's scandals. Your whole campaign is ruined. So you want to invent something or just get a, get a dog. That's a great point. How about the famous pit bull with the circle around one eye? Yep. Petey from Petey. Our, our gang. Little and Rascals. Very good. That was during the 1930s. Now, the original Petey, his name was Pal the Wonder Dog and was an American pit bull terrier. And he had a natural ring almost completely around the right eye and dye was used to complete the circle. Now, on Wikipedia, you can see a great famous picture of the dog, Petey the pup, sitting in between two of the characters. One was the boy who played Stymie and the other boy, Wheezy. Do you remember those characters? Yes. <laughs> This was in the R Gang Comedy Schools Out, and the picture was dated 1930. When Pal, the Wonder Dog, died, his son named P. 
Pete took over the role, producers decided to continue the tradition of drawing on the entire circle, a custom that would continue in every future remake of The Little Rascals. Nice. Remember Old Yeller? Not so much. Tell me about Old Yeller. Oh, I can't believe you don't remember Old Yeller. Spike was his name. He was a yellow lab mix and best known for his performance as Old Yeller in the 1957 Disney film Old Yeller. Spike was obtained as a puppy from the Van Nuys Animal Shelter in California. The movie Old Yeller tells the story of a stray dog and a young boy who sees potential in him. Gradually, he learns the love of a family, and this dog is protecting them from all sorts of danger and risking his life for them time after time. Do you know how Old Yeller died in the movie? Yeah, I knew there was a sad part of Oh, my God. It's the saddest <laughs> scene in film history. <laughs> Old Yeller defends the family against a rabid wolf. And during the fight, Old Yeller's bitten and injured by the wolf. And because of Old Yeller's exposure to rabies, the older son is forced to shoot and kill Old Old Yeller. You don't remember that scene? I, I can't believe my parents allowed me to watch well, that movie. My parents loved me. And did not allow me to see it. Well, maybe that's why I turned out the way I am. I'm going to stop here because thinking about what happened, Old Yeller is making me too sad. Okay, More with Animals Today right after the break. that there is a National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. Yes, it's true. And if you ever get out there, you should really visit it so you can get up on your history and learn about uh, this important event. I've just learned that they have a collection relating to the dogs that were involved in that horrible conflict. I want to welcome Doran Cart. He is Senior Curator at the National World War I Museum and Memorial. Welcome, Doran. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so I was able to uh, view a little bit of the collection related to uh, dogs in World War One. Tell us, uh, give us an overview of what you've got going on there, and uh, and how does the public access what you have? Okay, um, we don't have a whole lot of physical objects related to dogs. We have a few, but primarily it's through our records and our resources that we have in our public use library. But um, over the years, I've been real interested in, uh, you know, doing research on dogs uh, that were in World War I, and they were, they were incredible uh, animals and made contributions to the war effort. Dogs were really uh, played important roles uh, for most of the armies that were involved uh, in World War One, from 1914 to 1919. Uh, dogs hauled machine gun and supply carts and lots of other supplies. Their main, um, one of their main efforts were that they were messengers and they often delivered their missives under a hail of fire. And according to one French source that we have here at the museum, at one time during the war, more than 2,000 dogs were in service on the Western Front. That's incredible. And dogs were also, uh, they were also trained, especially by the French Army, to be first aid dogs. 
and they were selected and carefully trained, often by, for months, to go onto battlefields and locate wounded soldiers. And they were trained to either stay with the soldier until human aid came or to bring back evidence of the wounded French soldier. And many of the dogs actually carried first aid kits in packs on their backs for immediate use for treating wounded soldiers. So they were very important in that aspect. They really uh, served in a lot of those efforts, but many others, um, one of the ones that we have photographs of uh, in our collection, the French used the small dogs in their trenches for rat catchers. Oh because rats were the overwhelming scourge of trench life, and those rat-killer dogs proved invaluable. And there's one picture that we have. It shows all these rats lined up on the side of the trench and the rat-killer dog sitting on top very proudly looking at all his catches with his French handler. And rats were a scourge because they spread disease, they would eat the soldiers' food, and they would actually, you know, attack soldiers when they were sleeping. And so to have these kind of rat catchers was very important. Really the most important aspects of dogs in the war is that they were friends. They were mascots. They were companions. And they played an important role in morale building. And they created, what was really important, they created a feeling of home life under war conditions. Probably the most famous dog and and people of my generation certainly heard of came from a pair of puppies that were rescued by a fellow who was in an Air Force unit and they were looking at a abandoned German airfield to see if they could use it for their headquarters and there were two German Shepherd puppies that had been abandoned. And uh, the soldier adopted them, and he named them after these two kind of souvenir French dolls that uh, a lot of the soldiers brought home with them. And the dogs were, the dolls uh, were named Ren Tin Tin and Nanette. And so the soldier named his puppies Ren Tin Tin and Nanette. And he got got permission to bring them home. They had to be quarantined, and they had to have their shots and everything before they could put them on the troop ships. So he had the two puppies and brought them home. And right before the ship landed in New York, uh, Nanette died of distemper. But the male puppy, Rin Tin Tin, survived. And the owner... The fellow who uh, had saved him uh, at the in uh, the battle from the battlefields took him home with him to California, and as he grew, he was uh, he trained and he entertained people in the neighborhood and everything. And a Hollywood director saw this dog and said, "Wonder if he could do tricks in a movie." And so he did, and he became one of the most famous movie stars of the late 1920s and early 30s. And, of course, his name was Rin Tin Tin. You provided a couple of short videos to me, or your team did, and uh, one of them shows uh, 
the soldiers taking the message out of the capsule around the dog's collar. It's really amazing. Uh-huh. Why was this needed? Were there not radios at that time? Uh, give us a little well, context. There were no wireless radios. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were, you know, everything was wired. So telephones were the main main means of uh, communication, but in areas where they didn't have the telephone wires strung and they couldn't use other methods of communicating, then they would use the dogs as messengers. And one kind of anecdotal story about dogs as messengers, and one of the main reasons that they were used was they could get low to the ground, and so they were not in sight of the enemy. And the other one, believe it or not, in a horrible war that was going on and and the millions of people killed, uh, humans actually found it hard to shoot at dogs. Mm. They could shoot at humans, but they found it hard to shoot at the dogs who were on the battlefield. So they kind of had a little shield around them because of the uh, humans' affection for dogs. One of the images your team also forwarded to me was a almost like a postcard, and it's got five dogs uh, uh-huh. from different countries, and the uh, caption is, I'm neutral, but not afraid of any of them. And they're dressed as if they're from those countries. What does that mean? Why was this produced, and who's it talking to? Well, basically, it, that postcard, and, and it's one of my favorites, I know it very well, was done in 1915. And America was still neutral at that time, and the United States did not join as a full fighter in the war until April of 1917. And so uh, that was not the only instance like this that dogs were actually used as propaganda. And so their images, and the one you're, you're talking about, the British are represented by the English bulldog and the German by the dachshund and the American by the Bull Terrier. And if I recall correctly, he's got a basically an American flag tied around his neck. And then the French Bulldog, he's dressed like a French soldier, and the Russian Wolfhound like a Russian soldier. And he's, you know, and the, and the American dog saying, I'm neutral but not afraid of any of them. And that's what he meant, you know, that America would side with, with people, but he was not afraid of fighting any of the, well, people or dogs that are represented in the card. And so dogs were used in that way, especially uh, the anti-German sentiment by the, created by the Americans on postcards and things like that. And so he was always represented like as a dachshund with the spiked, the ubiquitous spiked helmet on his head. And that was one kind of thing that the Americans knew about the German army was that spiked helmet yeah. and because it represented uh, the Prussian uh, attitude. And so uh, that's how they were represented. But I know there's another postcard where, where an American, Uncle Sam's hand is holding the poor little dachshund by the neck saying, you know, uh, I'm not going to be bitten by you or something like that. So, uh, yeah, he, the dachshund suffered pretty much in the propaganda that was put out during the war. And one of the most striking images you also shared with me was a line of dogs pulling those machine gun carts you referred to. That is really uh, an incredible thing to imagine. What's the story behind an image like that? 
And uh, if it's the same picture that I'm thinking of, uh, those are Belgian uh, work dogs, and they were part of the Belgian army. And the, the machine guns that the Belgians were using were very heavy, and so and the ammunition. And so they had these they had these carts, and the Belgians didn't have as the horses that they had available were primarily used for the artillery, and so the dogs then were used for pulling the machine gun carts. And yeah, there is one really great picture of the Belgian troops, and this is early in the war in the fall of 1914, uh, showing the dogs there with that are laden down pulling the machine gun carts. And I know there's another photograph of uh, a couple of American soldiers uh, who were kind of playing around for selfies, as we would call them today, photo opportunities, and, they're, and one of them sitting in a, in a dog-pulled cart. And so they were used for labor like that as well. Doran, what else can visitors uh, see when they come visit the museum? I'll give you a chance to pitch the museum so everyone nearby will come visit you. We are an international museum, and all the nations who were involved in World War I are represented here at the museum. So uh, it starts in our main gallery. It starts in 1914, and, you, and it goes around all the way to 1919 at the end of the war with the peace treaty. And, you know, everything from uniforms to cannons to uh, uh, communication devices like we were talking about. So we cover really every aspect of the war, from air warfare to sea, the war at sea to uh, women. We're very, uh, we have a large collection of women's materials. Uh, they were very important in the war effort. And, um, you know, it really covers the whole gamut of this uh, cataclysm of the 20th century. And if people want to visit, they can go online to our website, and it's www.theworldwar.org. And we have uh, lots of things on there for people to see. And we also have links to our Facebook and to our Twitter account. Doran Cart, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Appreciate your letting me come on this morning, Doctor. More with Animals Today after this break. Ferber returns. Bob is a good friend of the show. He's former Los Angeles Animal County prosecutor. And uh, Bob and I have been talking about some of the U.S. territories not really abiding by the federal ban on cockfighting. They are saying, it sounds, we are territories and we're going to do what we want. And uh, Bob uh, is not going to have any of that. Right, Bob? (laughs) That's right. I'm with an organization now that um, is uh, advocating strongly for the federal government to enforce the federal law that was passed that makes cockfighting 
in every part of the United States, including Guam and Puerto Rico, a federal felony. It was passed about a year ago, and Guam and Puerto Rico, uh, including their governments, their governors, fought it claiming that uh, this was a cultural event the United States mainland could not interfere with and that this has been going on for hundreds of years, which is true, and that this brutal, bloody, what they call sport, is something that they're entitled to engage in. And most recently, uh, the federal courts ruled that they do have to listen and follow the law but the sport, if you will, continues. Uh, people who have been to Puerto Rico and San Juan, uh, your listeners will know that there are actually arenas for $35 uh, and free for children and women. Wonderful. You can walk in and watch probably one of the most brutal, bloody forms of animal abuse on the planet. And the governors of, of Guam and Puerto Rico actually stated openly that they were going to defy the law and tried to even pass local laws opposing it. We're at that point, Peter, where we have the law, but as you've heard me say before, uh, good laws are useless if they're not enforced. By the way, uh, this would probably come as a shock to your listeners because it came to me. Uh, the birds, these fighting birds that are trained simply to fight, they're not pets. They're roosters that uh, unfortunately are raised to, ju to just fight with these razor-sharp surgical uh, uh, quality blades, uh, razor blades that are attached to their legs and they slash each other. That's what the sport is. And you wouldn't believe where the birds come from. They're coming from the United States, uh, including California. These birds are raised in the United States and then shipped to my, I'm, I still can't believe it, through the United States mail. Oh, boy. to these territories. And in fact, that's also a felony to ship these birds through there. And, and what the people who raise the birds say, they lie and tell the post office, uh, which is kind of a silly argument, but they say that, well, these roosters are for 4-H clubs and for agriculture, but anybody who is involved in the agricultural business or anybody who's ever visited a farm knows that the average ratio is about one rooster to maybe 50 birds, 50 chickens. And these locations that have thousands of these roosters, there are no chickens at all. And they're shipped to Guam, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and and there's tens of millions of dollars involved in this, including in Guam, the government actually profits from it by issuing permits. So I'm part of an organization called Animal Wellness Action, and it's uh, primarily former prosecutors like myself that have come together that are advocating uh, and by meeting with prosecutors around the country, U.S. attorneys and district attorneys, pushing them to enforce the laws on the books. And in my opinion, in our group's opinion, these people need to go to jail, and including anybody from the U.S. Post Office and government officials that are participating in this. Um, they should be facing stiff penalties and convictions for felony animal abuse. You know, Peter, I, when some people have a 
you have difficulty putting a handle on how this works. For those of us who either remember back in the in the 60s or have read it in the school when uh, you know when we uh, the a separate but equal was let me put let me say that for those of us who remember back in the 50s and 60s when there was discrimination and then the federal government said that schools have to admit blacks the infamous governor george wallace stood on the steps of i believe it was the university of alabama uh, and refused to allow a black student into the college robert f kennedy pulled brought federal troops who escorted this young woman, brave young woman, into the college and said that the states cannot defy the federal law against racial discrimination. I'm not trying to suggest that this is exactly the same as racial discrimination, but it is legally very similar. We have, a, uh, in this case, a territory who's openly defying the federal government and saying, you can't tell us what to do, just like Governor Wallace told the federal government, you can't make us integrate schools. One of the issues that comes up is when the federal government sent troops out to Alabama to enforce that. Realistically, uh, this is a scenario where I doubt very much that federal troops are going to come to Guam and Puerto Rico to close down these events. Uh, And you also have tremendous local opposition to this. The majority of people, by the way, Peter, that have been polled in in these territories are against cockfighting and but you have a strong minority that claims it's cultural and and just to throw this last comment in peter as a prosecutor i used to years ago we would have people come into court men who had abused their wives from hispanic cultures from mexico and central america and the public defenders would say you don't understand you shouldn't punish them well, you should give them less of a sentence because beating your wife in Mexico is cultural. And we would get that with Middle, Middle Easterners saying, well, it's okay to beat your wife in the Middle East. And thankfully, uh, we didn't accept that in court. We said, we don't care where you are. This is not cultural. This is abuse. It was abuse of women. Um, and, it, and it was violence. And it's inexcusable. And it's and anybody who claims it's cultural should be ashamed of that culture. Bob, what's the name of the organization yeah. again? And I presume you, people can find them online. Absolutely. It's called Animal Wellness Action, AWA, animalwellnessaction.org. The former head of the Humane Society of the United States, Wayne Pacelli, is the founder. When they look that up, they can look up the National Law Enforcement Council, National Law Enforcement Council. It's a subdivision. That's the group of prosecutors of which I'm a part of that are pushing to get animal laws enforced. And in your sh- on your show, of course, you frequently have guests talking about laws that are on the books, but they're not being enforced. And yeah. we- our mission is to go beyond even cockfighting, just all the laws that are protecting wildlife, bears, horses, uh, dogs and cats and whatever, that where our mission is to get governments to actually enforce the laws that are on the books. Bob Ferber, thanks very much, and we'll look forward to an update. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals.